0: To where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Welcome back. This episode features Christy Ingalls. She's the SVP of marketing at the Beauty Strategy Group and Beauty Barrage. And she's become a good friend, and I really enjoy spending time with her, so I hope you enjoy her episode. And if you missed last week's episode, it features Charlotte Cho. She's the co-founder of SoCo Glam. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to Where Brains Meet Beauty. I am sitting across from Christy Ingalls. She's at SVP Marketing at Beauty Strategy Group and Beauty Barrage. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to see your smiling face. Aw, thank you. I'm so happy to be here and just honored that you considered me to speak.
0: This is so awesome. So I want to tell everybody how we met. So it was actually our podcast guest, Tracy Murphy, like almost a year ago probably,
1: who introduced mm-hmm. us. Actually, I think I introduced you to Tracy. Oh, then how
0: did I meet you?
1: <laughs> we had a mutual client in common, and I called oh, is you
0: that up. It? And oh, Oh, that's like, right. Yes, oh, my God. you like, totally we have right. to meet. <laughs> okay, I have it totally wrong. I was actually, when I was writing this, I'm like, wow, that's, that's so smart of Tracy to think to connect us. How would she think about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was like, you have to meet Tracy. She's amazing. You're right. We had a m- mutual client in common, and we've had many mm-hmm. the, the, the year or so that I've met you, and you connected me to Tracy, so I have that wrong, but thank you for clarifying. Sorry. Um. But the whole point of me um, making notes about this is because I love knowing you because we're both vendors in this wild west of beauty. And I feel like with you, I have a sounding board, right? Just for like the challenges sure. of moving through this business. Um, and uh, I have a question for you then about this. So I'm a vendor and you're a vendor, which means that we're just not the brand. Correct. Right, but not the brand. Um, I feel like sometimes in our industry, vendor is like a four-letter word. Oh, Yeah. So you, you have the same experience? Absolutely.
1: We, we like to try and we're trying to prove that third party isn't third rate on a continuing basis. What a clever thing. Did you guys trademark that? Maybe we should. Yeah, you should. OK,
0: because that's how I feel like yeah. um, not from our clients, but like this kind of general sort of the way the business works from like networking organizations and event organizations. I feel like vendors like a fu kind of word.
1: Mm hmm. Absolutely. It drives
0: me nuts.
1: And, but the funny thing is, a lot of these startup brands don't have big internal teams. Everybody that they're utilizing is an outside vendor. So I think from the entrepreneurs, it's not necessarily a bad word, but from maybe the established players in the industry that are threatened by all of the entrepreneurs and startups nipping at their heels, it is much more threatening.
0: Right. So I want to join the crusade with you on- 100%. um making the like erasing this notion like the stigma right i mean when i think about product development i'm not a product developer and neither of you um you think about these like third-party labs that are doing innovations around mascara and they're the ones who are driving the mascara industry forward it's mm-hmm. not the brand the brand's the marketing tool right Absolutely. but it's like those people who are investing the time and like the stickiness of the formula and the, the whatever of the formula and their vendors yeah. Um So I think it's really us who are driving the business forward just as much as the brands.
1: Absolutely. No, I would completely agree with you on that.
0: So I'll carry my soapbox to our, our next meetup.
1: <laughs> and we'll talk will, about this. We'll shout it from the rafters if we need to.
0: We can start a magazine all around, like, vendor life. <laughs> Maybe it should be a blog.
1: <laughs> Remember, print is dead.
0: No, but I think it's going to come
1: back. I think so, too. I think that it's, like, percolating a little bit. I think there's... People have been so immersed in digital that they're really seeking that kind of... You know, more of, like, a touch and feel to things, like, tactile. That's why, as big as beauty is online, retail is never going to die because people are always going to want to touch and feel and smell and play with a product.
0: Right. I think that um, print's going to come back. I think it's going to be more niche. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe if you're a publisher, you have to own a lot a lot of titles, right. of, you know, reach a lot of different types of people. But it's almost like fragrance. There's going to be something for everybody. And the tactile experience of opening a magazine and carrying it with you and like, you know, um, kind of pulling things out of it and putting it on your wall, it's going to be back. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I think people are going to crave it because we have an influencer marketplace right now where it's so much pay-to-play that it's becoming untrustworthy. Yeah. Um, so people are going to crave, I believe, you know, really more of this like voice of reason and this kind of curated effect that you know, maybe ultimately is paid by advertising. But those people are a little bit more of their own
1: universe—the people who are making
0: decisions about what's great and what's not.
1: Yeah. I think that's an interesting point. I mean, if you look at some of the traditional print publications, you know, Condé Nast is definitely verging more towards digital and digital experiences um, and closing up some of their print titles, but then you'll see some of the European fashion magazines, like purple or you know maybe it's a quarterly publication where you have these beautiful tear sheets a really beautiful paper quality and people want that sort of stuff to hang on to and as you said like hang it on your walls have a little inspiration board that's outside of pinterest in your office yeah so that's the other soapbox i guess i'll carry with me
0: (laughs) to our next meetup Um, okay so tell me how you're going to be spending your day today
1: How am I spending my day today? I have a lot of catching up to do. We were just in Palm Beach last week for the Women's Wear Daily Beauty CEO Summit, and so there's a lot of follow-up with people that we met there, um, follow-up emails, just sharing some of the um, imagery that we created. We did a really cool little pop-up um, bazaar with a couple brands and had a lot of pictures, so I've got to get all of that stuff out. And we're actually planning for a webinar that we're doing on Thursday. Sonia's going to be speaking um, on a webinar about staffing um What is it? Building the right field team, basically. That's cool. So can you tell us um, what is Beauty Strategy Group and Beauty Barrage? So there's two different sides of the same coin, if you will. So the Beauty Strategy Group is everything it takes to sell into retail. So from branding, marketing, um, retail presentations, we'll even work with product development and formulators to really kind of help facilitate the final brand um, formulation. Packaging vendors, you know, high, like working or referring people like yourself to help create just the overall brand identity. So everything to get you into retail distribution, social media, PR, influencer strategy, all of that stuff. So in some respects, getting into retail is the easy part. So a lot of times, as a brand, you think once I get retail distribution, the product just sells itself. I have to do nothing. I'm on easy street, cashing checks. No, <laughs> selling through is the more challenging part of that. So that's where the beauty barrage business comes in. Um, and having done a couple of startups in the past, I know how challenging it is to identify, um, find, you know, find, educate, hire an, a field team. You know, you can't be in all places at all times. Traveling, um, you know, the T and E expenditures can be quite prohibitive to have maybe just a couple people trying to hit every single door you're in. So we offer. 300 people servicing 3000 doors in North America to go in as your brand. So, we have a really rigorous training and education program that they are well versed on your brand attributes, your key selling points and they go in as your brand. They're never like walking in store going, "Oh hey, I'm like with Beauty Barrage and I'm here for what what brand is it today?" Like they go in basically Looking like your brand, sounding like your brand, and in fact, we've actually have a few different case studies where we've outperformed internal brand teams. Oh my God. Yeah. This is a genius idea. Sonia Summers is a genius. Shout out to my CEO. But I mean, she's, this was all her brainchild. I mean, she'd been so successful placing brands at retail. They got into retail and were asked, you know, Sephora has a requirement. They're looking for a brand to have six hours, um, people in store for six hours a month to service the brand. And brands are like, I didn't, where am I going to find people to service at least my top 200 doors? I mean, that's that can be very prohibitive and challenging just from a time and manpower perspective. And then you've got to hire somebody... Just to basically be HR to manage your field team on top of everything else you're worried about. So she had a few people saying, like, you have to help us do this. And she was like, no way. It's like herding cats with ADD. Not interested. No, thank you. Because she had staffed field teams in the past um, and wound up paying for a lot of people that were just sitting at home on their couch. Right. So she's investing a lot of money and doing it right. Um, we have a proprietary app that we developed on our own that's geo-fenced, so our people in the field can only clock in and clock out from the actual store that they're assigned to. they actually have to complete a survey before they clock out. So we work with the brand to get like questions. You know, They're going to want to know how many people did you train? What does the inventory look like? How do the tester units look like? Take a picture of what the display looks like. And they compile all of that feedback and have to complete those surveys before they actually clock out. So the client actually has Access to that in real time, so they have actionable intelligence mm-hmm. that they can utilize to really help improve their business and course correct if they need to.
0: It's really genius. I kind of want to be on your field team. Like, <laughs> come aboard. <laughs> um, I love it because I do think that um, what's missing in the whole marketing landscape lately, the past few years, is. A focus on like person-to-person interaction like mm-hmm. human to human right we're like so many we meet so many brands whether they become clients or not who are obsessed with what's happening on social and what's happening in digital marketing which i'm not saying it's unimportant right but i think we're losing sight of like a human to a human um and we need to focus on that like that needs to be an investment
1: yeah i mean the human touch is really what it's all about and you know there's a, just that interesting magic that i think takes place in store sometimes like um where somebody opens your eyes to something that basically just sitting there on the shelf on its own, like maybe the hue doesn't look like it would actually be right on your skin, but you don't understand that maybe it's going to transform a little bit and blend exactly to be the perfect lipstick for you that you would have passed by had somebody not taken the time to kind of talk to you about it and explain what it does.
0: Right. I think a lot of the decision making, at least for myself, when I like boil down my emotions, like when I'm trying to pick a new foundation shade or whatever, is the courage to think that or like the faith to think I'm picking the right, making the right choice. Mm -hmm. That's when like another human being who's, you know, been around the product for many months and many faces, um, can give me that strength to be like, yeah, it is the right color for you. Don't worry about it. Go ahead buy it. You're fine. You know, I need that reinforcement.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice to kind of hear somebody that you trust as an authority to say, you look, gorgeous in that oh my god you look amazing and then that kind of becomes contagious and you I think you feel a lot more confident for sure
0: yeah so I'm spending my money and I'm spending my time I want to have that that feeling of confidence and not that oh I don't know I think Mm -hmm. I need to bring it back right right so I love this idea um and Sonia's my new hero because she's really full (laughs) throttle right she really is um but let's talk about you What is your background before this?
1: So I had started out as an agent for hairstylists and makeup artists, so I was a little bit of a beauty pimp. You know, you need a hairstylist? I got one for you. (laughs) Here's how much it's going to be. I worked with a lot of different celebrity clients. Um, uh, I mean, at the time I started, the music industry was still... I don't know, thriving. It was before digital had really overtaken it. So Shakira, I think at one point, really helped keep my business afloat. Thank you, Shakira. Um, because she'd booked the same hairstyles and makeup artists. She uh, had, yeah, she had one of my guys on tour with her for about 10 months when she first launched. And it was it was lucrative. You know, we were making a nice little amount of money on it. And it was a fun project to do. So we, I would do advertising campaigns for L'Oreal, for Revlon, Estee Lauder, Chanel. Um... Big editorial work. Was actually able to call Chanel and say, "Oh, I have somebody doing somebody's makeup for the red carpet. Would you be interested in that?" And actually figuring out that the brands would pay money to get the promotional credit and the product credits. So learned that at an early, early stage, I would say, in the career. So I did that for about ten years, and it was super fun. Made a lot of amazing relationships and. Had one of my hairstylists say that he was interested in starting a hair care line, and I naively said, "Well, golly gee, that sounds like fun. I'd love to help." And made me his business partner, and I had no idea what I was getting in for at all. When was this? This was in two thousand seven, and I remember the first time we were talking to a manufacturer, and they said, "So just send over your bombs." And I was like, "What's a bomb? What? I'm sorry, I don't explain. You need to explain this to me, please. Your bill of materials. Well." okay, what does that look like? Can you send me a sample? I mean, it was really like getting an MBA. What is it, Bob? On the job. Uh, your bill of materials. So if you're preparing your bill of materials, um, it's basically what's in your product, what your product consists of. Um, so for a finished good, it's going to be a cap and a label and a, and a component and actually having to come up with item numbers for all of those, you know, your own internal item numbers. It was learning a lot of different things for sure. Did the brand take off? The brand took off. We did really, really well. And we were actually doing content marketing, I think, before content marketing was known as something and working with influencers um, online, doing a lot of YouTube content. So I understood that anytime somebody contacted us with a customer service question about their hair, um, because our product line was we were formulated based on your hair texture, so kinky, curly, wavy, or straight, and we were having a very different dialogue with the consumer than I think a, a lot of the other big brands were, and Dicky, the celebrity hairstylist that was the founder of the brand, the um, brand was called Hair Rules. He had written a book you know, basically educating women on how to Educating them on their hair texture and what it needed. So. When people would write to us with questions for him, you know, related to transitioning or stopping relaxers or even sometimes caring for their kid's hair because they'd never really been taught how to work with their own texture on their own. Um, instead of just responding to somebody and having a one-on-one conversation, I worked with Dicky to actually do video content to answer these customer you know questions um, through a video that we would then post to YouTube. So then other people who maybe had that same question and haven't thought to, Write to us, had the answer there. So we were doing a lot of video content, and it was, I mean, it was certainly a fun time. I mean, Facebook was just opening up for people outside of college campuses, right. um, and it was before it was really a pay-to-play sort of scenario. And we built a lot of um, authentic community with our people, with you know the and consumer, and we won a WWD award for best launch at Mass in 2012. Wow, that's great. It was, yeah, uh, really great.
0: So was this a (laughs) self-funded initiative?
1: Um, We had an outside investor, and, you know, unfortunately, like, we launched in 2007, got into the market in 2008, right as the economy took a complete nosedive. Um, And I don't know if the retail landscape was 100% ready for us at the time. Um, I think it's changed quite a bit now. I mean, now diversity is the buzzword, and we were talking to retailers about, this is where the trend is going. I mean, look at the census data. This is what's happening, and you're a fool to think that it's not happening. And at that point, there was still a lot of segregation in the aisles, especially at mass for hair care, and we were trying to argue, like, you're not servicing your customer by doing that. And so we were kind of at this bridge between, I would say, your mainstream hair care and your ethnic hair care, because we worked for all... Textures, and we were probably one of the first, you know, sulfate free, paraben free, phthalate free brands. We were talking about that in 2008, and now that's kind of table stakes.
0: Right. How fascinating. So, um, what happened with the company?
1: Um, So, Dickie is actually still running the brand. Uh, We had opened a salon in Hell's Kitchen, he's still doing the salon there. the funding kind of dried up and we had launched into Ulta and Target and Walgreens and we just didn't have the marketing dollars to support mm-hmm. a launch like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't realize how much it takes to sell that sort of stuff off the shelf. And it was basically, you know, we lost the outside investment, and we we're gonna be continue to be, be self funding. And I got an opportunity to join another brand and took that mm-hmm. which was they had serious amounts of funding, um, and it was actually sold within two and a half years of launch to J&J.
0: Wow. What was that brand?
1: It was an LED light therapy device called a Lumask, and uh-huh. we were trying to democratize um, light therapy. So it was a dollar a day usage, basically. We had two different devices, one for acne, so it was red and blue light, and mm-hmm. another device for anti-aging, which used red and infrared light. Um, so 30 doses, 30 treatments for $30 and was sold at Walmart. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was a really fun project to be on. I, um, had a pretty big budget to play with and was able to do a a big advertising campaign with Facebook, um, and actually getting Facebook people on the phone, which made me feel really right. like, whoa, Facebook's talking to me, um, and some other outside agencies to create the proper audience, and then created all of the content and education materials to get people to understand this and not be afraid of it. And the campaign that we put together took it to the number one SKU in beauty at Walmart within wow. six weeks of launch. That's awesome. Which was very fast. Very. You know, that was a nice little feather in there.
0: So, um, you know, you mentioned like having a marketing budget, Um, you know, while like social lets us do things on the cheap, like, there really is a point where, like, the free doesn't work anymore, right? You need to make investments, which I think a lot of brands, maybe the same brands that you meet that I meet, where, like, it's kind of a surprise to them, Mm -hmm. the amount of money that they need to invest to really move forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, they keep changing the algorithms, so Facebook, you know, when we had gotten in with Hair Rules in 2007, there wasn't really that pay-to-play aspect, and I think it was probably around 20... 10, 2011, you started had to kind of pay, and then I think by 2012 was really when they switched things that you had to pay to reach your audience. So the whole point of creating a big audience of people that you, you could figure you could have um, organic engagement of 30 to 40 percent, so it made the sense to build an audience or maybe even do like a dollar-a-like campaign or something like that. If you had a million people, you could reach 30,000 of them organically. Well, now you are only going to reach about 0.2% of your audience unless you're spending the money to boost it to your audience. Mm -hmm. Instagram used to be free too, but it's owned by Facebook and they've been sitting there for a long time kind of figuring how are they going to monetize it. And now that's rolled out. I mean, even some of the influencers are having to monetize their posts because if you see, you know, I'm sure you see how your feed has changed over the last year you can be following people that have huge huge audiences and it might not necessarily be showing up in your feeds so you do have to spend the money to get it for sure
0: yeah and then you talk about all the marketing money to actually like get the product to be sold you know right like this is this is not a um you know, a lot of people enter the beauty industry, I think, thinking it's going to be a get-rich-quick
1: scheme. Well, they think, all they hear, the margins are great. Right. So, yeah, the, well, but all that money goes to the marketing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really fast. I mean, we'll do a robust P&L for brands, you know, to kind of show them what success at retail looks like. And, you know, they're kind of like looking, okay, when does the money come back in? Because there is a significant amount of investment. You know, if you get into Sephora, getting into those digital programs, unless Sephora is really investing in your brand and helping to offset some of that cost for you, um, getting in the featured in Sephora newsletter is going to cost you money. It's scouted at Sephora. Um, that's a little bit more organic, but, you know, the digital programs there... They don't come for free, right? You know, the. I think one thing that was very eye-opening for me was I kind of thought that, I, I guess I didn't really expect that you were a revenue line for the retailer. So they're looking to try and, you know, how much did they get in from you in a commitment for a circular right. or an email blast or an end cap or, you know, um, dollars for promotional programs that you're attributing. So there's all these other allowances and deductions that you don't necessarily realize right off the bat. And that can be very enlightening when you see it on paper or in an Excel spreadsheet.
0: Yeah, I would imagine it's an awakening for new, new people into this. Definitely. Right, so um, when you think about all the costs involved in actually driving sales at retail, um, what what does the little player do? like let's say there's a, a small brand, they don't have this army marketing army, they don't have a marketing, giant marketing budget when you really believe in the product, right? If you're like, "Wow, I think this actually is like you know needle moving and differentiating, what can they do?
1: I mean, so the beauty barrage side of the business, you know, we like to say that we're kind of bringing the online experience offline in store. So I think there's a lot of brands right now that are starting online because it's a little easier to build a consumer base. You know, if you're spending all of that money to build an audience and drive awareness, why are you going to f- siphon that off to a retailer when you can go directly? to your own.com. But they get to a point where you've kind of maxed out on the potential revenue and the only way to increase sales is to go into retail. And the retailers are following all of these brands on Instagram. And we see it when we meet with a retailer and you mention a brand, the first thing they do is go to Instagram and kind of look for their story. Um, So they're being a little bit more cautious, I think, in who they're bringing in store now because it's so competitive and are looking for brands that already have an established point of view story and consumer that they're going to, drive into their doors. Mm -hmm. Um, Once you get into retail, there is work to be done to be sold through, and that really comes with the training and education. As I said, that's what we do on the beauty barrage side. So... um, It can be very cost prohibitive to try and hit all of your doors all at the same time. So, really kind of coming up with a strategy focused on that the old 80 20 rule, where you know 80% of your business is probably going to come from 20% of your stores. So, focusing on those 20% of the doors to begin with and spending the time to kind of get the ROI and then expanding a program from there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, to drive. Awareness, I think definitely participating in some of the GWP programs that some of the retailers have or getting in some of the subscription boxes like an Ipsy or a FabFit fund to really help build awareness and then build a little bit of a relationship that will help to translate at the store level.
0: What do you think is missing like product or brand wise
1: from the marketplace? Like do you see opportunities for newness? (sighs) I mean, I think there's always opportunities for newness. You know, K-Beauty is so hot right now. Now they're kind of talking about J-Beauty. And I think what's been interesting about all of that is they're really bringing in different formats and different sensorial experiences that you hadn't seen before. So I think making skincare super fun with these really unusual textures and um, changes that you'll see. Um, Yeah, there's definitely, I think, some opportunity for white space and some things that we've contemplated doing on our own so i may not share that
0: (laughs) conversation for when the microphones are turned off
1: (laughs) yeah there's some things that we've um thought like was white space in in the market that um so far haven't seen anybody fully step into that i think could still be an opportunity but i you know i think it's really (coughs) excuse me um, it's really interesting to see how different skincare has become, you know, when we launched the Alu mask like people weren't really Instagramming about skincare so much. It was like before the whole masking thing mm-hmm. took off. Um, and I recognized like a lot of this just kind of natural conversation taking place. Like everybody wanted to do a selfie with this crazy glowing mask on their face. And a lot of other brands took notice of that. And so you'll see you know, Glam Glow did like a partnership with Super Mario. So they have this like crazy, really blue colored mask. I got, um, we'd ordered something from Korea the other day and got these sheet masks with like funny animal shapes on them that my son did them. And he didn't look anything like the animal on the envelope, but he had a blast doing it. Uh (laughs) He thought it was super fun. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think color cosmetics, it's a little trickier to find something truly innovative. But as I went shopping for a lipstick the other day, it was just like everything is like these heavy, almost like vinyl um, liquid lipsticks and, you know, mattes. And I'm like, when is kind of a little bit of a hydrating shine coming back? I hope Mm -hmm. to see that back on the shelf soon. Interesting. So I have a question
0: for you about um, your role in the company what it's like to work for a visionary founder. Because mm-hmm. um, I've noticed with my team... I just called myself a visionary founder, too, with my team. <laughs> um, they feel like a very heavy sense of responsibility, mm-hmm. In um, which I don't think I've asked for, but they just feel it, a sense of responsibility and, like, doing the right thing for the business and, re- you know, in a, in a way that I think is very sweet and kind and amazing, but um, makes them sometimes, you know, scared. I don't know if scared is the right word, but um, hesitant to make certain decisions that they think that, you know, could could make a client want to leave or whatever. I don't know something. Right. They they take on a sense of responsibility that um, I don't think they need to, but they they make it so personal because it's so personal for me. Um, do you feel that with Sonia? Like do you feel like you know this is her baby and you're doing everything you can to feed the baby and you know wipe the baby and you know help the baby grow?
1: Definitely. But I also feel that she's empowered us with some of what you're talking about, the ability to make a decision. Um, I'm fortunate because I've actually known Sonia personally. With Hair Rules, she helped us get onto the Shopping Channel Canada. So I had worked with her for the first time like six years ago. And then with the Lou Mask, she did some training and education for us with some Ulta stores. So I've already worked with her personally and will sometimes joke that it's like the hair club for men. You know, I'm not not just a client. (laughs) Now I'm... (laughs) Now I'm on the board. Um, but there was, there was a particular client we had on the BSG side where um, they wanted us to take them into Sephora. And we kind of took a look at everything they had. And we're like, it's just another Me Too brand. They already have a brand that does this exact thing. It's one of their best sellers. They're not going to kick them out just because you think your product works better. Mm -hmm. It might even perform better, but that's not enough of a reason for them to give you shelf space. And we're not seeing innovation. You know, we've talked to your innovation product development team. There's zero innovation in the pipeline. Here's some ideas for where we see the white space at retail and where, you know, some ideas that we think could work. And they fired us. And, you know, I was, one part of me is just like, oh my God, we got fired by a client. She's going to be so pissed. But the other part is that, now we kind of take that as a badge of honor like we're not afraid to tell people the truth Um, and a lot of times when I talk to Sonia and maybe my instinct is pointing me in a particular direction and I just need a sounding board we're aligned so I feel like she's done a really good job of building a team with people who kind of align with her vision Mm -hmm. and her ethos and understanding where you know how far we can push the boundaries and when we need to rein it back in.
0: Yeah, my team, I think the right word is cautious. They're like very cautious, even though I say to them, like, if a client leaves, it has nothing to do with us. Right. It really has nothing to do with us. Like, we're always going to do our work. We're always going to do the best. We're always going to say what we need to say. If they they fire us, they fire us. Right. Um, It's, you know, there are so many things about our business that are completely out of our control. Right. So I think I need to do some workshopping with them to get them to feel less cautious. Yeah. Because I don't want them to feel cautious.
1: Well, I mean, you want to retain clients. You certainly want to retain clients, but at what cost? Right. You know, at some point the alignment isn't there in terms of, I mean, we'll joke sometimes that, you know, your client comes in and it's like, a horse that's dehydrated and desperately in in need of water. And you draw them a map and like, okay, here's where the watering hole is. And I'm going to bring your horse there and I'm going to show them how to kneel down and drink the water. And they kind of think, well, okay, we got the map. We understand where it is. We'll we'll get to that later. And it's like, no, your horse is going to die. And then like the horse dies and they're pissed because I think sometimes they just think it's osmosis is going to how they're going to rehydrate. And that's not necessarily how it works and it's gotten to the point now where I've started to tell brands you know new brands that come on if they're questioning the retainer and he said look if it's a matter of you can afford our retainer or you can afford to try and build your audience and build consumers and build awareness you need to be focused on building your audience and awareness you're going to be wasting your money on us unless you already have that consumer Right, right because retail really isn't going to want you without a little bit of proof unless it's just the most amazing concept they've seen in years
0: right i love your horse thirsty horse (laughs) um picture that really is hilarious and totally true right right um i mean but as a as a external partner um we can only say these things right we can't make them do it right right? i can't um, force you to drink the water right um and I think that's where it gets super personal for me. Like, I see it. Why don't you see it? Make the the horse drink. Like, if you make the horse drink, there's, like, so much green, like, grass (laughs) beyond, right? Um, You can ride a lot further into the sunset. um, But then I've, like, needed to just chill out because it's not my brand, right? I'm giving them my expertise. We're handing over our point
1: of view. Like, we can't make them do it. Right. It's hard. It's really challenging because I you know, you're not the brand, as you say, but sometimes you take a little bit of pride we in take that line. Yeah, absolutely. Like it it kind of becomes your little de facto baby too. And so you really wanna help point them in the right direction and help them kinda of get the training wheels off and succeed on their own and they don't always wanna listen, right? Well, it's so nice to talk to a fellow vendor thank you and I would definitely say you are nowhere near third rate at all thank you first rate in our opinion for I'm sure
0: fluffing my hair after hearing that <laughs> thank you for your wisdom today Christy it's so oh, awesome to
1: have you here thank you for inviting me it was so fun we're done already yeah look it's
0: 31 oh my goodness. minutes oh my, and for our listeners keep going
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I hope you enjoyed this interview with Christy please subscribe to our series on iTunes and for updates about the show follow us on Instagram at where brains meet beauty podcast